Section twenty one of the Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler, edited by Henry Festing Jones. Sixteen Written Sketches, Part Two. Mrs. Hicks. She and her husband, an old army sergeant who was all through the Indian mutiny, are two very remarkable people. They keep a public house where we often get our beer when we're out for our Sunday walk. She owns to sixty-seven. I should think she was a full seventy-five, and her husband, say, sixty-five. She's a tall, raw-boned, gothic woman, the strong family likeness to the crooked old crusader who lies in the church transept one would expect to find her body scrawled over with dates ranging from four hundred years ago to the present time just as the marble figure itself is she has a great beard and moustaches and three protruding teeth in her lower jaw but no more in any part of her mouth she moves slowly and is always a little in liquor besides being singularly dirty in her person her husband is like unto her for all this they are hard-working industrious people keep no servant pay cash for everything are clearly going up rather than down in the world and live well she always shows us what she is going to have for dinner and it is excellent and I made the stuffing overnight and the gravy first thing this morning. Each time we go, we find the house a little more done up. She dotes on Mr. Hicks. We never go there without her wedding day being referred to. She has earned her own living since she was ten years old, and lived twenty-nine and a half years in the house from which Mr. Hicks married her. I am as happy, she said, as the day is long, she dearly loves a joke and a little flirtation. I always say something perhaps a little impudently broad to her, and she likes it extremely. Last time she sailed smilingly out of the room, doubtless, to tell Mr. Hicks, and came back still smiling. When we come, we find her as though she had a lean among the pots, but as soon as she has given us our beer, she goes upstairs and puts on a cap and a clean apron and washes her face. That is to say, she washes a round piece in the middle of her face, leaving a great glory of dirt showing all round it. It is plain the pair are respected by the manner in which all who come in treat them. Last time we were there, she said she hoped she should not die yet. You see, she said... I am beginning now to know how to live. These were her own words, and considering the circumstances under which they were spoken, they are enough to stamp the speaker as a remarkable woman. She has got as much from age and lost as little from youth as woman can well do. Nevertheless, to look at, she is like one of the witches in Macbeth. New Laid Eggs when I take my Sunday walks in the country, I try to buy a few really new-laid eggs warm from the nest. At this time of the year, January, they are very hard to come by, and have long since invented a sick wife 
who has implored me to get her a few eggs laid not earlier than the self-same morning. Of late, as I'm getting older, it has become my daughter, who has just had a little baby. This will generally draw a new-laid egg, if there is one about the place at all. At Harrow Weald, it has always been my wife, who for years has been a great sufferer and finds a really new-laid egg the one thing she can digest in the way of solid food. So I turned her on as movingly as I could not long since, and was at last sold some eggs that were no better than common shop eggs, if so good. Next time I went I said my poor wife had been made seriously ill by them. It was no good trying to deceive her. She could tell a new-laid egg from a bad one as well as any woman in London, and she had such a high temper that it was very unpleasant for me when she found herself disappointed. Ah, sir, said the landlady, but you would not like to lose her. Ma'am, I replied, I must not allow my thoughts to wander in that direction. But it's no use bringing her stale eggs anyhow. The egg that hen belonged to. I got some new laid eggs a few Sundays ago. The landlady said they were her own and talked about them a good deal. She pointed to one of them and said, Now, would you believe it? The egg that hen belonged to laid 53 hens running and never stopped. She called the egg a hen and the hen an egg. One would have thought she had been reading Life and Habit, page 134 and Passim. At Englefield Green. As an example of how anything can be made out of anything or done with anything by those who want to do it, as I said in Life and Habit that a bullock can take an eyelash out of its eye with its hind foot, which I saw one of my bullocks in New Zealand do. At the barley mowing of field green, they have a picture of a horse and dog talking to one another made entirely of butterflies' wings, and very well and spiritedly done too. They have another picture done in the same way of a greyhound running after a hare, also good but not so good. At Abbey Wood, I heard a man say to another, I went to live there just about the time that beer came down from fivepence to fourpence a pot. That will give you an idea when it was. At Item Moat, we took Item on one of our Sunday walks about a fortnight ago, and Jones and I wanted to go inside over the house. My cousin said, you'd much better not, it will only unsettle your history. We felt, however, that we had so little history to unsettle, that we left him outside and went in. Dr. Mandel Creighton and Mr. W. S. Rockstro Quote, The bishop had been reading Mr. Samuel Butler's enchanting book, Alps and Sanctuaries, and determined to visit some of the places there described. We divided our time between the Italian lakes and the lower slopes of the Alps, and explored many mountain sanctuaries ellipses. As a result of this journey, the bishop got to know Mr. S. Butler. He wrote to tell him the pleasure the books had given us, and asked him to visit us. After this, he came frequently, 
and the bishop was much attracted by his original mind and stores of out-of-the-way knowledge. Unquote. The Life and Letters of Dr. Mandel Creighton by his wife, volume 2, page 83. The first time that Dr. Creighton asked me to come down to Peterborough, in 1894, before he became Bishop of London, I was a little doubtful whether to go or not. As usual, I consulted my good clerk, Alfred, who said, Let me have a look at his letter, sir. I gave him the letter, and he said, I see, sir, there's a crumb of tobacco in it. I think you may go. I went, and enjoyed myself very much. I should like to add that there are very few men who have ever impressed me so profoundly and so favourably as Dr. Creighton. I have often seen him since, both at Peterborough and at Fulham, and like and admire him most cordially. I paid my first visit to Peterborough at a time when that learned musician and incomparable teacher, Mr. W. S. Rockstro, was giving me lessons in medieval counterpoint so I particularly noticed the music at Divine Service. The hymns were very silly, and of the usual Guno Barnby character. Their numbers were posted up in a frame, and I saw that there were to be five, so I called the first Farringdon Street, the second King's Cross, the third Gower Street, the fourth Portland Road, and the fifth Baker Street those being stations on my way to Rixmansworth, where I frequently go for a walk in the country. In his private chapel at night, the bishop began his verse of the psalms always well before we had done the response to the preceding verse. It reminded me of what Rockstraw had said a few weeks earlier to the effect that a point of imitation was always more effective if introduced before the other voices had finished. I told Rockstraw about it and said that the bishop's instinct had guided him correctly. Certainly I found his method more satisfactory than if he had waited till we had finished. Rockstraw smiled, and knowing that I was at that time forbidden to work, said, Satan finds some mischief still for idle brains to do. Talking of Rostro, he scolded me once and said he wondered how he could have done such a thing as call Handel, quote, one of the greatest of all musicians, referring to the great chords in Erewhon. I said that if he would look again at the passage, he would find I had said not that Handel was one of the greatest, but that he was the greatest of all musicians, on which he apologised. Pigs we often walk from Rickmansworth across Moor Park to Pinner. On getting out of Moor Park, there is a public house just to the left, where we generally have some shandy gaff and buy some eggs. The landlord had a noble sow, which I photographed for him. Some months afterwards, I asked how the sow was. She had been sold. The landlord knew she ought to be killed and made into bacon but he had been intimate with her for three years, and someone else must eat her, not he. And what, said I, became of her daughter? Oh, we killed and ate her. You see, we had only known her eighteen months. 
I wonder how he settled the exact line beyond which intimacy with a pig must not go if the pig is to be eaten. Mozart An old Scotchman of Boulogne was holding forth on the beauties of Mozart, which he exemplified by singing thus. I maliciously assented, but said, Strange how strongly that air always reminded me of Voi che sapete. Divorce. There was a man in the hotel at Harwich with an ugly, disagreeable woman who I supposed was his wife. I did not care about him, but he began to make up to me in the smoking room. This divorce case, said he, referring to one that was being reported in the papers, doesn't seem to move very fast. I put on my sweetest smile and said, I have not observed it. I'm not married myself and naturally take less interest in divorce. He dropped me. Ravens. Mr. Latham, the master of Jones's College, Trinity Hall, Cambridge, had two ravens named Agrippa and Agrippina. Mr. Latham throws Agrippa a piece of cheese. Agrippa takes it, hides it carefully, and then goes away contented. But Agrippina has had her eye upon him and immediately goes and steals it, hiding it somewhere else. Agrippa, however, has always one eye upon Agrippina, and no sooner is her back turned and he steals it and buries it anew. Then it becomes Agrippina's turn, and thus they pass the time, making believe that they want the cheese, though neither of them really wants it. One day Agrippa had a small fight with a spaniel, and got rather the worst of it. He immediately flew at Agrippina and gave her a beating. Jones said he could almost hear him say, It's all your fault. Calais to Dover. When I got on board the steamer at Calais, I saw Louis Day, who writes books about decoration, and began to talk with him. Also I saw A.B., editor of the XYZ Review. I met him some years ago at Phipps and Beale's, but we did not speak. Recently I wanted him to let me write an article in his review, and he would not. So I was spiteful. And when I saw him come on board, said today, I see we are to have the editor of the XYZ on board. Yes, said Day. He's an owl, I said sententiously. I wonder, said Day, how he got the editorship of his review. Ah, said I, I suppose he married someone. On this the conversation dropped and we parted. Later on we met again and Day said, do you know who that lady was? The one standing at your elbow when we were talking just now? No, I said. That, he replied, was Mrs. A.B. And it was so. Snapshotting a bishop. I must some day write about how I hunted the late Bishop of Carlisle with my camera, hoping to shoot him when he was seasick crossing from Calais to Dover. And how St. Somebody 
protected him and said I might shoot him when he was well, but not when he was seasick. I should like to do it in the manner of the Odyssey. And the steward went round and laid them all on the sofas and benches, and he set a beautiful basin by each, variegated and adorned with flowers, but it contained no water for washing the hands, and Neptune sent great waves that washed over the eyelet holes of the cabin. But when it was now the middle of the passage, and a great roaring arose as of beasts in the zoological gardens, and they promised hecatombs to Neptune if he would still the raging of the waters. At any rate, I shot him, and have him in my snapshot book, but he was not seasick. 1892 Homer and the Basins When I returned from Calais last December, after spending Christmas at Boulogne, according to my custom, the sea was rough as I crossed to Dover, and having a cold upon me, I went down into the second-class cabin, cleared the railway books off one of the tables, spread up my papers, and continued my translation, or rather analysis, of the Iliad. Several people of all ages and sexes were on the sofas, and they soon began to be seasick. There was no steward, so I got them each a basin and placed it for them as well as I could, then I sat down again at my table in the middle and went on with my translation, while they were sick all round me. I had to get the Iliad well into my head before I began my lecture on the humour of Homer, and I could not afford to throw away a couple of hours, but I doubt whether Homer was ever before translated under such circumstances. 1892 The Channel Passage how holy people look when they are seasick. There was a patient Parsee near me who seemed purified once and forever from all taint of the flesh. Buddha was a low, worldly-minded, musical comic singer in comparison. He sat like this for a long time until... And he made a noise like cows coming home to be milked on an April evening. The two barristers at Ypres. When Gauguin and I were taking our Easter holiday this year, we went, among other places, to Ypres. We put up at the Hôtel Tête d'Or and found it exquisitely clean, comfortable and cheap, with a charming old-world last-century feeling. It was Good Friday, and we were to dine maigre. This was so clearly de rigueur that we did not venture even the feeblest protest. When we came down to dinner, we were told that there were two other gentlemen, also English, who were to dine with us, and in due course they appeared. The one, a man verging towards fifty-eight, a kind of cross between Cardinal Manning and the late Mr. John Parry, the other some ten years younger, amiable-looking and, I should say, not so shining a light in his own sphere as his companion. These two sat on one side of the table, and we opposite them. There was an air about them both which said, You are not to try to get into conversation with us. We shall not let you if you do. We dare say you are a very good sort of people, but we have nothing in common. So long as you keep quiet, we will not hurt you. But if you so much as ask us to pass the melted butter, we will shoot you.
We saw this, and so during the first two courses talked sotto voce to one another, and made no attempt to open up communications. With the third course, however, there was a new arrival in the person of a portly gentleman of about fifty-five, or from that to sixty, who was told to sit at the head of the table, and accordingly did so. This gentleman had a decided manner, and carried quite as many guns as the two barristers, for barristers they were, who sat opposite to us. He had rather a red nose. He dined Meg because he had to, but he did not like it. I do not think he dined Meg often. He had something of the air of a half, if not wholly, broken-down blackguard of a gambler who had seen much, but had moved in good society, and been accustomed to have things more or less his own way. This gentleman, who before he went gave us his card, immediately opened up conversation with both us and with our neighbours, addressing his remarks alternately and impartially to each. He said he was an Italian who had the profoundest admiration for England. I said at once, Le non può amare l'Inghilterra più che io amo ed admiro l'Italia. The Manning Parry barrister looked up with an air of slightly offended surprise. Conversation was from this point carried on between both parties through the Italian, who acted, as Gauguin said afterwards, like one of those stones in times of plague, on which people from the country put their butter and eggs, and people from the town their money. By and by, dealings became more direct between us, and at last, I know not how, I found myself in full discussion with the elder barrister as to whether Jean van Eyck's picture in the National Gallery, commonly called Portrait of John Arnoldfini and his wife, should not properly be held to be a portrait of van Eyck himself, which, by the way, I suppose there is no doubt that it should not, though never gone into the evidence of the present inscription. Then they spoke of the tricks of light practised by de Hooge. So we rebelled and said de Hooge had no tricks, no one less, and what they called trick was only observation and direct rendering of nature. Then they applauded Tintoretto, and so did we, but still as men who were bowing the knee to Baal. We put in a word for Gaudenzio Ferrari, but they had never heard of him. Then they played Raffaele as a safeguard, and we said he was a master of line and a facile decorator, but nothing more. On this all the fat was in the fire, for they had invested in Raffaele as believing him to be the three percents of artistic securities. Did I not like the Madonna di San Sisto? I said no. I said the large photo looked well at a distance, because the work was so concealed under a dark and sloppy glaze that any one might see into it pretty much what one chose to bring, while the small photo looked well because it had gained so greatly by reduction. I said the child was all very well as a child, but a failure as a Christ, as all infant Christs must be to the end of time. I said the Pope and the female saint, whoever she was, were commonplace, as also the angels at the bottom. I admitted the beauty of line in the Virgin's drapery, and also that the work was an effective piece of decoration. 
but I said it was not inspired by devotional or serious feeling of any kind, and for impressiveness could not hold its own with even a very average Madonna by Giovanni Bellini. They appealed to the Italian, but he said there was a great reaction against Raffaele in Italy now, and that few of the younger men thought of him as their fathers had done. Gauguin, of course, backed me up, so they were in a minority. It was not at all what they expected or were accustomed to. I yielded wherever I could, and never differed without giving a reason which they could understand. They must have seen that there was no malice prepense, but it always came round to this in the end, that we did not agree with them. Then they played Leonardo da Vinci. I had not intended saying how cordially I dislike him, but presently they became enthusiastic about the head of the Virgin in the Vierge au Rocher in our gallery. I said, Leonardo had not succeeded with this head. He had succeeded with the angel's head lower down to the right, I think, of the picture, but had failed with the Madonna. They did not like my talking about Leonardo da Vinci as now succeeding and now failing, just like other people. I said it was perhaps fortunate that we knew the Last Supper only by engravings and might have fancied the original to have been more full of individuality than the engravings are, and I greatly questioned whether I should have liked the work if I had seen it as it was when Leonardo left it. As for his caricatures, he should not have done them, much less preserved them. The fact of his having set store by them was enough to show that there was a screw loose about him somewhere, and that he had no sense of humour. Still, I admitted that I liked him better than I did Michelangelo. Whatever we touched upon, the same fatality attended us. Fortunately, neither evolution nor politics came under discussion, nor yet happily music or they would have praised Beethoven, and very likely Mendelssohn too. They did begin to run Nuremberg, and it was on the tip of my tongue to say, yes, but there's a flavour of Faust and Goethe. However, I did not. In course of time, the seance ended, though not till nearly ten o'clock, and we all went to bed. Next morning, we saw them at breakfast. And they were quite tame. As Gauguin said afterwards, they came and sat on our fingers and ate crumbs out of our hands. 1887 At Montreux-sur-Mer, Jones and I lunched at the Hôtel de France, where we found everything very good. As we were going out, the landlady, getting on towards 80, with a bookish nose, pale blue eyes, and a Giovanni Bellini's Loredana Loredane kind of expression came up to us and said in sweetly apologetic accents, Avez-vous donc déjeuné à peu près selon vos idées, monsieur? It would have been too much for her to suppose that she had been able to give us a repast that had fully realised our ideals. Still, she hoped that these had been at any rate adumbrated in the luncheon she had provided. Dear old thing, of course they had, and a great deal more than adumbrated. 26th of December, 1901 End of section 21